Hello, and welcome to RBC Disruptors, our regular conversation about disruptive innovation in Canada and around the world. I'm John Stackhouse. On this episode, we're doing something a little different. Our podcast is going to include periodic conversations between Dave Mackay, RBC CEO, and some of Canada's most disruptive thinkers. Dave recently sat down with Steve Irvin, founder of Integrate AI. They talked about how Canadian companies can compete on data, how to challenge Google and Facebook in the war for AI talent, and how trust can be a competitive advantage. Here's their conversation. So Steve, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, first, we're going to start with, you know, tell us a little bit about the journey you took towards Facebook and what you learned there and how it uh, led you back to start an uh, exciting new startup in Canada. Yeah, sounds great. You know, serial entrepreneur, I guess, would be the best way I'd describe it. I started my career building a couple of marketing and technology companies, took what I like to call a, a six-year break at Facebook between the last one and uh, Integrate that I just started. And it's been an interesting journey for me. I, I feel like my last role at Facebook uh, was a really fascinating role. I had, I had an, an opportunity to see firsthand what it feels like to be part of a, you know, one of the fastest growing companies in history. I got to see what um, the impact is of some of the newer technologies, you know, starting with the whole social movement that, that Facebook was key in, in launching, and then moving into obviously mobile. And the last one that I spent quite a bit of time on in my last year was uh, this whole AI movement. And uh, I got introduced, I didn't have a background in it, I'm not a you know, PhD in machine learning, um, but I was responsible for looking at that part of the ecosystem and saying, you know, how do we build an ecosystem and how is Facebook gonna think about the application uh, of AI within the business? And the more I dug into it, the more I realized this is a massive opportunity, <laughs> much bigger than I understood before I had spent some time with the research group. And that there was a, a really big opportunity for me to build what, what I hope to be a global leading business in the space. And as I dug into it, I realized that you know, there, there might be an opportunity to build this business in Canada and actually have that be the best place in the world to build a business with these type of aspirations. And so I went from thinking, you know, this is a great opportunity. I'm going to stay here in the Valley and build this company to this is an opportunity for me to return home to a, a country that I love and, and hopefully build a pretty transformational business. Going from Facebook, as you said, the, one of the fastest growing, most integrated platform companies in the world to starting your own company, what we prepared for and what weren't you prepared for? And what would you find the biggest challenge going from the two worlds? I think both environments were very entrepreneurial, but obviously the size and scale is much different. So, you know, you go from running, you know, my last team in Facebook, you're dealing with, you know, billions of dollars and, and global reach and, and the scale of billions of people when you're making decisions. And then you come back to a startup world and you're like, oh, I got to, you know, hire some people and, you know, who's going to clean the bathroom? And, you know, there's just all these all these smaller kind of knickknack issues that you've just been kind of obfuscated from for, for a while. But I think the one really interesting thing that um, is similar is the mentality. I felt that the mentality is really helpful. You know, I was a startup guy before, but there's something about, you know, coming from a world where you've seen a company that has gone from the dorm room up 
to you know half a trillion dollars and like a really foundational business that gives you a different type of confidence when you come back and a and different level of ambition and aspiration and, and I think that's been the biggest change for me is is coming back and, and knowing that we can do it and feeling really confident that I can assemble the team here that we can win on a global stage that I know what those next stages look like and that's what the exciting part is for me but there's no question that back to startup life means you got to be scrappier you got to figure out ways to make things happen in in a way that uh that that you got to get away from a little bit of fispa but the nice thing is you come back to the startup world with so much global experience with a with a platform company so- yeah I think that's the big one. You know, it's an interesting point you hit on there too, Dave, because I think, you know, one of the criticisms I've heard of the ecosystem here, and I think it's a, you know, it's it's one to, to dig in on, is that, you know, we, we are a great place to build startups, but we don't have a demonstrated track record of like scaling those companies up to global leaders. And, you know, we've seen it recently with Shopify. I think they're a great example of a, you know, Canadian-based company grown up now. I think it's 12 billion plus um, market cap and they've done it all. And you see the impact of that. You know, you, you see the whole support ecosystem being able to benefit from seeing it. And obviously anybody working there is now seeing the journey and will be ready if they get into their next opportunity to be able to bring that experience forward. But if you compare that to somewhere like Silicon Valley, where you've got Google and Facebook and Apple and just the number of big companies, um, it's really difficult to replicate that amount of workforce dealing at that amount of scale, which I think is the interesting challenge for us over the next 10 years. Yeah, certainly we're in a world where, you know, if we look at our own world, the barriers between the traditional definition of industries are breaking down and everyone's thinking about you know platform companies that serve multiple customer needs and so kind of a segue into integrated AI that you're building around helping bring disparate sources of information together applying AI layers on top to serve that platform company why don't you give us a little bit of a background on what you're trying to do and and then the market need that you're trying to fill so one of the things that I saw when I was at Facebook is that um, there is tremendous power in uh, this concept of AI, but in the real world, it gets messy. And what's really important is data. If you've got great data and that data's got great signal, then these algorithms work incredibly well. And if you don't, it becomes a really big challenge. And so one of the things that, um, and, and obviously talent becomes another issue. So um, when you think about like talent, and data and you think about like how can we democratize those capabilities such that you know bigger traditional businesses might be able to operate the same way that a Facebook or an Amazon or others would be operating. I thought there was a big opportunity to build those capabilities into a software platform and be able to have that software platform not only have those AI capabilities to better predict your customers, what they need, their value, the actions you can take to be able to increase your revenue and their happiness, but also find a way in a very privacy safe and secure way to bring other data sources and insights to the table to supplement what you might be missing internally. Because not every company is going to have billions of users they interact with every day with full identity data and all behavioral data stored in a really easily accessible area. Most traditional businesses don't. 
And so we think that if we can bring those capabilities um, and, and allow them to accelerate to meet the opportunity, that there's there's a big opportunity for us to do that and, and show real business results as opposed to just, you know, interesting research. Um, but I'd be curious to, to turn that one on you. I mean, you've, you've been ahead of this one. I, I feel like you personally even have been speaking about this for a long time. Very different positioning I've seen, like for a bank. I've heard you you talk about Google and Facebook and others as, as your real competitors in the future. Why why did you get on this early and, and why are you so passionate about it personally? You know, I think you've, you've hit on a real need uh, as we talk about how our customers are changing. And in a nutshell, for the first time in our history, our customers broadcasting their life cycle, their life stage and their intent to the world. And we've had exclusive domain as a bank and, re- and being the recipient of that information. I'm getting married. I'm getting divorced. I'm buying a home. I'm starting a company. I'm selling a company. That information invariably found its way to close-knit friends and family, then to ourselves. And now through Facebook pages, through your search criteria, through how you view YouTube, through all these social media platforms, you're broadcasting your life, which allows others, as you said, to react to that. So you know, we recognize that we're not the only... Uh, partner in our customers' lives that understands what's going on. Therefore, others can provide those services if they queue into that data. So we've embarked, as you've talked about, on a strategy to ensure that we understand what's going on in our customers' lives as they leave a digital footprint in the world. And we quickly recognized, despite having interesting information on over 13 million customers, it wasn't enough, that we're missing big pieces of information, that we needed a partnership model to really understand what's going on in the customer's life could serve them in a very relevant way at the right time and not be intrusive and not spam them, uh, we thought was absolutely critical. So we've sought out a partnership model with others who can help fill out that picture. And I think a lot of retailers and a lot of B2C and B2B uh, players in the marketplace recognize they've got gaps in their understanding of customers. And that gap presents a long-term strategic risk that needs to be closed. And hence, I think you're really onto something and bring disparate source of data together on a customer that allows us to deeply understand what's going on in their lives and be very relevant to them. And I think privacy is obviously an issue, and we'll talk a lot as a society about privacy. But if you're relevant and you're trustworthy and you build Uber security around that, um, I think there's a really a welcoming role that a client will play in, in your understanding of who they are and your relevance to them. I love that you talk about trust. It's it's one of the things that we've put a big focus on at Integrate. We're actually building a, a dedicated trust team this year. And, and the reason we're doing it is, is what we're finding is that although the media you know, spends a lot of time talking about, you know, these killer robots that are going to come and, and take over the world and, and a lot of kind of conjecture around, you know, different parts of that argument and timing. I find that the, the biggest issues are the ones that, that are probably relatively underreported. Things like some of the ethical issues and bias that, that may be inherent in these models that could, you know, perpetuate some of the stereotypes that, that we're trying to get away from. Some of the privacy issues around how we're handling people's data and what is acceptable in different social norms. Security, I think we've seen some massive data breaches this year, and that's got people uneasy. And as a, as a as a bank, I'd be curious. Like I always think of banks as like the the number one thing that a bank is providing is trust. 
with your customer? Like, how do you think about those factors entering into this kind of big investment you've met in there? I think you really hit on it. We have a couple of big assets. One, we have great data, but more importantly, we have trust. And if you look at how consumers rate the trust factor between the social media platforms and the banks that they know well and have, have served them well over decades, we are a very trusted entity. So we don't take that trust for granted and we have to earn it every day and protect it. But it is a, a huge asset as you want to get to know a customer and they trust to give you this information. They trust you to share it with a select group of partners with their permission. I think that trust factor is is really important if you want to manage and store and, and leverage the data. So data is, is one of the lifebloods. But just to change to the second, what I think the second key ingredient is people. And as we sit, and who are the, the leaders and what type of skills do we need to really extract value? And from value, we need knowledge about what's going on inside that data and to, and to draw inferences and look at patterns that that data represent. And we're all talking about hiring different types of skills. There's a scarcity. There's global demand for those skills. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in the marketplace and how you're building up your firm? And you know, we're looking at the same challenges, trying to build an AI capability within RBC and this, you know the second challenge is people. People, I think, is a huge challenge. You know, I don't think it's it's a it's a new revelation. I think it's it's been you know well reported, and and we're seeing more and more competition. So as you said, I mean, you're building at an AI lab, and there there are other companies that that might be seen as more traditional companies that want to be able to get access to this talent. You've got the academic institutions that want to keep it because we need to supervise the next generation of these students. And so if we kill the pipeline, we we cause a bigger downstream problem. And I think we saw this year, right, with uh, Facebook, Samsung, Uber, uh, other global companies coming in, starting labs here, that there are a lot of people that want to mine the talent that we've got available. And us and and a number of other startups and scale-ups, I think, are are also, um, you know, actively uh, recruiting that talent. I think there's two things to think about. I mean, one is we need to be able to make sure that that we've got the foundation to be able to build more talent here. I think the investment that RBC and, and others have made in Vector um, Institute here in Toronto, where I'm an advisor, I, I think has been a really big breath of fresh air this year. It, it's going to focus on trying to be able to create these academic pipelines so that we get more students involved and we just get a, a, a higher number of really talented people coming out of these schools. But I don't think that's fully going to address the problem. I mean, maybe we get up from six students graduating in their PhD to 50 students in a couple of years, but we're still talking about a relatively elite group of small, talented folks. And so I think being able to understand how we can kind of democratize some of this into software platforms, into um, products, that are consumable, allows the capability to get out to more people without everybody having to build that capability through their own individual teams. And I think historically that's how we've seen these type of capabilities scale in software. You know, it starts out as a good idea that somebody builds custom and then it turns into a platform that's consumable by a larger audience. And um, that's the future that we see in, in one of the ways that we're hoping that we can take the talent and just amplify the impact of that talent by building it into scalable software platform. Right. I think that's absolutely the way to think about it because there is a scarcity. Yeah. What about you? I, I always find it fascinating. You know, we sell on the, the sales pitch for us is on the total other end of the spectrum. Right? We're the startup, we're this hot, fast growing startup, all the, the excitement around where we can go and how early we are and getting in on the ground floor. 
and you're coming in, you're a bank, you know, you're building this new lab and all these big hubs around the country. Like, what does the sales pitch look like to get these machine learning researchers for, uh, for you? It's a great question. Uh, I know the sales pitch because I deliver it myself yeah, to hire this one-on-one with a number of these, these great researchers and, and PhDs. And we started at Borealis AI a couple of years ago. We're at 35 researchers. There's a couple of things that we really offer. One, access to data is, is the lifeblood. And so we start with great data. We start also with solving some very interesting large problems. But that's not enough. That's on the applied side. Really attracting almost half of those researchers was to allow them to continue to do the pure research into the foundation of AI. It's, we're in the early days. This is like the Model T Ford. There's a lot of capacity just being applied against the pure capabilities within the AI world, whether it's reinforcement learning or others, and therefore allowing your researchers and your team to continue on where their passion lies and then bridge into the applied world for us was mission critical. So I would say over half of those 35 researchers are in the pure side of the AI and half are in the applied side. And they work in rooms side by side and they, they, they fertilize ideas and they share in a team. But we had to really make that a big part of our thrust at Borealis AI uh, to do both. So I think that's a big part of it and resources accessibility you know, budgets to go out and buy data to get accessibility to data there's a lot of capital being thrown at that and also a Canadian homemade solution not everybody wants to move to California sometimes I want to come back and to be a Canadian based player with offices in Montreal Toronto and in Edmonton Alberta to start uh, was very important that scope so we need to do all three breadth access to data peer and applied Research makes us a very attractive place. And the openness of our culture and collaboration, I think, has been led us to have one of the larger shops in the country. And uh, it's a good start. But as we talk about it, everyone's talked about building, building, building the capability, which we just talked about. How do we translate that into real value for the world? And what do you see as the journey over the next couple of years as everyone's going to start to translate? Okay, we spent a lot of money. We built capability. Now what do we get for it? I think this is a, a very important uh, question to start to answer in 2018. I think uh, what we saw in 2017 was a, a doubling down on our research advantage. And so, you know, I've compared this uh, recently to a relay race. We have passed the baton from the first runner to the second in first place. I think we've done a phenomenal job on our research side. And I think the majority of the effort in 2017 has been to sustain that advantage. Let's not lose these researchers. We've seen this happen in the past. Let's keep them here. Let's attract more. Let's really double down on this advantage that we've got to move the state of the art. I think in 2018, for us to start to get on a path to economic and commercial benefit, we need to start to see a transition onto the applied side. I think we are, when you look at our our balance in Canada, I think we are world leading on research. And I would say we we have a lot of work to do on commercializing that research. I think it, it probably means a bit of a shift in focus on, on a couple of different areas. One is, um, you know, as one of these hopefully promising scale-ups that, that's growing pretty quickly, there's still quite a bit of friction to, to grow into business and getting adoption. And uh, although we've got great clients and we've had really good success in a year that we've been around, I, I think that there is opportunity to be able to make sure that there is a clearer path 
to ensure that we become these bigger companies and not um, get consumed by these these other larger entities. And then I think we need to we need to to start to publish not just papers about how the research is evolving, but we need to start to show business results. We need to, you know, I think it's great to get leaders like you coming out and saying, like, here's how much additional revenue we've been able to gain. Here's the increase we've been able to provide in the service and how much happier our customers are by applying this stuff in the wild. And so that's where we're focused. We've seen some great business results. I know the capabilities are there today, but I think more of an orientation around celebrating those capabilities and the the practical impact versus just celebrating the research is is a trend I would love to see happen this year. But I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that. Like, are you seeing the commercial benefit? Like, where are we in your world in terms of realizing the payoff for a lot of the investment you've made? You're absolutely right. We're just starting to see it. So we've integrated a number of capabilities into our algorithmic trading operations, which is kind of the first step. A broader application just came uh, later in 2017 when we launched Nomi which is an AI-based advisory platform for our, our 13 million Canadian-based retail customers, you know, watching how they're transacting and looking at their limits and, and, and pinging them with suggestions on how they can optimize their cash flow and minimize their cost of banking. And I think that's been a huge success. With I think we're over 30 million uh, uses of that product in the first four months. Uh, so we're just starting to see that. So we're deploying these capabilities and this research into our credit card and core checking business to make sure that we're relevant to customers. So I can see it coming and I can see the early response from customers that this is value added, I'm gonna keep doing it. And that's what we're looking for. And our customer satisfaction and our usage of our product should go up. And it's early days, but we're, we're very excited. This is a real trend. This is a real capability that has long-term benefit for, I think, our planet and our country. So Steve, one final question, and you've been very generous with your time today. You know, big prediction for 2018. I think the big trend we will see in 2018 has got to do with the impact of these AI systems on people. I think we're gonna start to hear a lot more about the implications to privacy, to security, to ethics. I think you're gonna start to see people that haven't participated in this conversation yet, um, folks responsible for risk functions in large companies, policymakers, regulators, start to dig in on this as they start to understand where we might have topics to discuss. Um, I think. A good example on the ethics side is that I don't think a lot of people assume that machine learning models would have bias because they're seen as these machines making dispassionate decisions that should be the right decisions and completely fair. And as you dig into it, you realize that they're really just perpetuating the biases of whatever data that they've been trained on and whatever patterns exist in that data, they're going to they're gonna continue. And so I think issues like that, once people start to un- identify them and, and spend some time on them, I think you're going to see a lot more written about that and hopefully a lot of progress on that such that this big technology advancement becomes an advancement that can bring everybody along and 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 hopefully get us closer to the world that we want to live in and not actually take a step backwards into some of the challenges we've had in the past. So that's my prediction for 2018 and I really hope that it happens. 
I think it's a great point. There's a lot of fear in the general media right now around the impact of machines and the openness on this journey is critical in bringing everyone with us to realize the full benefits of this. Sincere thank you, Steve, for your insights and I really wish you all the best with Integrate AI. My pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. Thanks for downloading RBC Disruptors. Our show this week was produced by Peter Henderson. You can reach us at rbcdisruptors at rbc.com and join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse from RBC. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.